Ready? Well, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will jump into our fourth lecture here on eschatology. Um, to, this morning, we're looking at dispensational premillennialism. So we're going to transition from regular premillennialism to uh, a newer form called dispensational premillennialism. And hopefully, you'll have a better understanding of, of that by the end of this lecture. It's a, a lengthier discussion because there's so much more that, that needs to be adjusted about the timeline and kind of discussed of different passages and interpretive views. So we'll, we'll consider uh, this over the next two weeks. Let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, just the opportunity to open your word and to study it together. We pray that you would give us a better understanding um, of revelation and of eschatology in general. Um, and this passage that drives so much of the conversation in Revelation 20. Pray that we would um, ultimately, in the end, have a better understanding of you and of ourselves, that we might glorify you and be prepared for Christ's return. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. All right, so we're looking at dispensational premillennialism, and I've, I've been kind of hinting about this for a while, just some of, the, um, some of the differences. I've written it down here, but where being the probably biggest difference is that the return of Christ happens in, in not just two stages, but really he comes twice. He comes in a, at, at one time to rapture the church, and then he comes a second time, um, which is kind of his formal second return where he stays and, and establishes the millennial reign. Um, <clears throat> we can remember some, of, so the biggest difference would be that this uh, return happens in, as two different events. Um, we've gone over amillennialism and postmillennialism and premillennialism. These are kind of historical views. In fact, I, I found out last week you, you had asked um, Dad about premillennialism and how long it's been around. Heliasm has existed really since the second century. So the idea of a millennial reign following the return of Christ had been an interpretive view as early as the second century. Dispensational premillennialism, it was, yeah. I mean, it was just as popular, I'd say, as in some of the other views, although it was ultimately um, rejected by the reformers. Um, but that was much later, you know. 16th century. Hmm? The early church fathers? Yeah, there's a mixture. They're kind of, some, some fully agreed with it and others, others don't. There's a, there's a large mixture of views in the early church um, because they have, they were, they were really defining theology like in it from a Christian perspective at that point and, and having a lot of internal debates about, uh, about everything, you know, the person of Christ, the, his two natures, uh, the Trinity. They're defining these terms. So eschatology was not a, a major talking point in the early church, but I think it existed for sure. And there was some debate about, you know, about the two, the differences as far as whether the millennial reign was after the return of Christ or before. Uh, that was essentially what they debated. So you were either 
pre-mill or post-mill at that point. Right? You either thought the millennial was before his return or after his return, which is how we define it, pre-mill, post-mill. Um, amillennialism existed as a thought, but it didn't, it, it, um, closer to like the fourth century was when they started developing that idea. And um, it was just a, a tweak on post-millennialism, right? I mean, it was still holding that fundamental position, but changing where the Great Tribulation happened, whether it really happened early in the present age or what, whether it was still a future tribulation. So anyways, the, what I want to say is, is these historical positions have been around a long time. These two are confessional, and then dispensational is what we're going to talk about today. So we'll have to define it. I've got, I've got a more detailed timeline on the back, so we'll flip it later on, but um, I wanted you to just remember where the, all the different, uh, the ideas that we need to incorporate into the timeline. Um, but before we look at the timeline and specifically eschatology, I just want to look at some of the distinctives of dispensationalism in general. Um, dispensationalism wasn't articulated until the late 19th century. So we just said most of these views existed in the first four centuries. Um, all of you know these two views existed pretty much as early as we can as, as we can date as from the second century, and amillennialism shortly after that. Uh, dispensational premillennialism didn't exist until the 19th century, articulated first by John Nelson Darby. And here's some of the two primary distinctives that they made was that. The Bible should be interpreted literally, the whole Bible, including prophecy. So they don't make a distinction between various genres of Scripture, generally speaking. They, they don't feel the need to, unless it's totally obvious. Um, they know that Jesus Christ is not literally a lamb, right? That, that he's, they, John was seeing that in his vision, but they wouldn't say that Jesus literally turned into a lamb, right? That's symbolic language, and they would agree to that symbolism. But only where it's obvious like that, right? So if there's a chance that you can interpret it literally, then it should be interpreted literally. If it's numbers, you should interpret them literally. Um, so they don't see any, any real symbolism there. Um, historical, doctrinal, moral, prophetic content, they're all taken in that literal, normal sense. That doesn't mean they don't find other distinctions between those genres, but literal is their default application, you know, interpretation. Whereas if you remember last week, I, I argued that, actually two weeks ago, that symbolism should be our default interpretation when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to apocryphal literature. Um, so they take it in that literal, normal sense. They do allow for the use of figurative language, but they interpret it with a literal approach, which I'm not really sure what that means, but that was in the language of, George, um, no, who said that? Either Walverd, I think John Walverd said that. Uh, basically, they allow for figurative language, but they interpret it in a literal, with a literal approach. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to go go back to that source and understand what exactly he meant by that. Um, it, in practice, it just seems to be quite confusing because rarely do you have a unified approach or an interpretation to the text of Scripture from a dispensational point of view. 
They kind of say, some will, you know, argue that like the locusts in Revelation um, 9 are uh, helicopters, you know, and others will say, no, that's, you know, we don't know exactly what they are, but they're, they want to, they, they all want to pinpoint it to some literal event or you know, they want to apply it to something rather than taking sort of what, what I would say is just, it's a, it's symbolic of evil, right? Being demolished um, or, or evil demolishing the population because that's, you know, what, what happens is these locusts are coming up from, from hell and they're, they're given, they're given, given freedom to, to bring judgment upon the earth. So we'll, I, I don't want to jump way ahead of myself, but here's, that's the idea is they have a literal interpretation as much as is possible. Okay. Secondly, and this is a big one, um, both of these are huge to the argument for dispensationalism, but you have the literal approach and then you have a distinction between Israel and the church. Okay? An, an ongoing and perpetual distinction between Israel and the church pretty much since Abraham was called, right? And from the very first call to us, that began to establish Israel as, a, as the people of God, they have been a separate people from the church. Um, in fact, all of the Old Testament is about Israel and very little about Gentiles. In fact, if you wanted to be saved in the Old Testament, you had to enter into Israel as a nation, right? You had to become an Israelite. So really, God was still only working with Israelites then, and then you had, in the New Testament, um, the introduction of the church. However, so here's where there's some disagreement even among dispensationalists because many of them view that Old Testament or that Old Covenant era extending all the way into, all the way to Pentecost till, Christ, till the Spirit comes upon the church, and that's when the church era begins. So what does that mean about the Gospels? I mean... Basically, any application from the gospel should focus on Israel, not the church. It should all be about Christ uh, instructing Israel. And we know his ministry was to the Jew first, right? But it was also to Gentiles. But he, but he had that, that kind of outline that Paul describes in Romans. So you have ministry, though, from the gospels. I mean, I've, I've even remember talking to a pastor who said that really the Sermon on the Mount shouldn't be applied to the church because it was meant for Israel. And, and so you, once you start reading that way, that to me is, is really as, as bad as denying some of the Old Testament texts as being literal, right? You know, some like, old, like creation texts. Um, you can really just sort of dismiss text because it doesn't apply to me personally. Um, and that's dangerous. So I don't want to say everyone does that today, but when that was originally established, that is, that is uh, those two distinctives had some real problems for the church. So John Walvert says this, the present age is a parenthesis or a time period not predicted by the Old Testament and therefore not fulfilling or advancing the program of events revealed in the Old Testament forever. So the whole New Testament is a parenthesis, or most of the New Testament is a parenthesis, where God, is, God had been dealing with Israel, now he's dealing with the church, and then he's going to deal with Israel again. So that parenthesis exists from basically 
Um, I, you know, Walvard may be one of the people who, in, who believes that that church age began in the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, if not, he would say Acts 2 until basically Revelation 20 um, would be the church age, and everything outside of that would be dealing with Israel. So dispensationalism taught that Israel and the church were distinct peoples of God, that God's instructions and purposes for Israel were separate from his instructions and purposes for the church. And, and in fact, the present church age is a parenthesis in God's redemptive plan. So he began with Israel and will finish with Israel, but in the meantime, the church benefits from a period of darkness that has fallen upon Israel. And you can hear some of that language is biblical, right? Some of these ideas are biblical. Romans 9 through 11 essentially articulates some of this that from Paul where he's arguing that... that um, branches of the original olive tree have been broken off so that the Gentiles can be grafted in and Gentiles can be broken off so that, you know, believing Jews can be regrafted into that same olive tree. But here's the, the, the thing. It's one olive tree, right? And, and you're either broken off or grafted into that one olive tree. There's not two distinct olive trees that are for Jews and Gentiles to keep them separate so that the instructions about how that tree grows and how it flourishes is, is completely unique. Um, I, I think that's where we would see some significant differences between dispensationalists and, and, most, and all of the other views. So let me look at a few verses here. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, 15 through 16. And because I'm recording this just for anyone who, who can't make it, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read these passages, but you can follow along. <clears throat> Galatians 6, 15 through 16 says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. This, to me, is a... a uh, an important verse to speak of the unity of the church today the, between Jews and Gentiles. The Israel of God, remember, who's Paul writing to here? Galatians. This is a, a Gentile church, the Israel, and he calls them the Israel of God. So the Israel of God is the same as all true believers who walk by this rule. Um, in fact, it, so some would argue, dispensationalists would argue that you have a distinction here between those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and also upon the separate group, the Israel of God. Sort of making a distinction here. But the Greek should, in fact, be interpreted even. So by this rule, uh, all who walk by this rule, even upon the Israel of God. Essentially, he's talking about the same group. Um, circumcision does not matter, but a new creation, which is the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, saved by faith in Christ alone. Even if you wanted to say, well, let's interpret it in a dispensational way, this one verse, verse 16, it's a totally, it would be like a foreign introduction into the, the whole letter of Galatians for him to, to, to speak like that, of this separation um, between these groups or try, try to make them as distinct peoples. So <clears throat> that's, that, would argue, that would go against his whole argument for the letter. All right, Acts chapter 13 is another section to look up. If, you, if you're 
If you want me to pause or slow down on something, just let me know. I'm going to try to get as far as I can today, and like I said, we'll pick up on the same topic next week. But Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 34. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now, who's he talking to you? Look down at verse 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This isn't, these are promises made to Israel that are fulfilled in the New Testament church. Anyone who, who gathered at that point and was listening to Paul and Barnabas speak <clears throat> were the recipient, you know, and they respond in belief, were the recipients of those promises. 1 Peter 2.9 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we've studied 1 Peter in, the, in this church, and, and basically 1 Peter was written to a church made up of mostly Gentile Christians who had been exiled in, into Asia Minor for their faith. So you're talking about Gentile Christians exiled to Asia Minor, um, and, and Peter is speaking to them with Jewish language from the very beginning of the letter, especially here, calling them a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Right? This is, these are the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The idea of a chosen race comes from Isaiah 43, verse 20. A royal priesthood and a holy nation comes from Exodus 19, verse 6 as well as Exodus 19.5 points out a, a people for his own possession. So all of that is then applied to the Gentile church. You have the same idea with the seed of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3, which we were already in Galatians. If you just went back a few chapters, you'd find him talking about the church in Galatia you know, being the seed of Abraham by faith. Right? They became children of Abraham through faith. All of this implies a unity between these two groups, not a distinction. So Zion and Jerusalem are inclusive of Jews and Gentiles. That language, it applies to Gentiles, this idea of Zion and Jerusalem, which clearly is talking about Old Testament fulfillment to Israel being fulfilled by the uh, church today made up of Jews and Gentiles. So you see that in Hebrews chapter 12 and Revelation 21. Those are parallel accounts that picture this combining of the people of God. Last one I want to look at is Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Romans 11, verses 17 through 24. 
But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And then they, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So very, very clearly a combination of the, t- of the two peoples, right? It's one olive tree, and just as, as some who grew up within the community of Is- you know, the Jewish community or Israelite community, some were, gra- were broken off through unbelief, and Gentiles are grafted in, same thing can happen to Christians, right? You can grow up within the church and through unbelief be broken off from the olive tree. But it's, it's one tree, not two distinct trees. Any questions about what we've said so far? Okay. So the two big distinctions, keep those in mind because... For the most part, those hold today, although I would say progressive dispensationalists um, like Daryl Bach would, would deny the distinction between Jews and he, they would say, no, there's one single plan of salvation, one people of God. It'll remain one, yeah. Yeah, and that's, um, I, I don't know precisely where all of the progressive dispensationalists would stand, but they're moving in that direction to see that unity as well throughout Scripture. Um, I would, I'm not positive where MacArthur stands. I know at one point he would not have defined himself as a progressive dispensationalist. Now he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, which I have no idea what that means other than he's not quite as confident as he once was. Um, or at least he's, he's changed some, some view about it. Um, dispensationalism and the Bible, let's, let's just kind of define the, the, their, their view overall. God interacts with humanity through seven different dispensations, okay? seven distinct eras of time. The first one was this age of innocence where from Adam to the fall. So you have basically Genesis 1, 1, 2, 3, 7, or whenever the fall actually happened, you have that age of innocence. Um, The second dispensation is conscience or moral responsibility. And this is from Adam to Noah. So Genesis 3, 8 through 8, 22 would be the second dispensation. The third dispensation was human government, so from Noah to Abraham, Genesis 9 through 11, 32. 
Then you have the dispensation of promise, which is Abraham to Moses, Genesis. Last, uh, so you have the, the church age beginning at Pentecost, Acts 2, 4 through Revelation 20, verse 3, which is when Christ returns. And then it's the kingdom age. The final age is the millennial reign, kingdom age. Now, this is his interaction with humanity on earth during the, those seven dispensations. They also still see a final stay after that millennial reign. But those are the seven different eras, okay? So originally, God operated differently in bringing salvation in each dispensation. You know, he, he added a different component so that Adam would have been saved through perfect obedience. Um, and then you have the idea of conscience or moral responsibility, simply sort of the moral law that God gave them when he created them prior to the giving of the, of the law would have been you know, obedience to that moral responsibility or conscience would have saved. Then you have obedience to the human government established um, between Noah and Abraham. Anyways, you had God actually saving people in different ways. Now, like I said, most people have gone away from that now and they say, no, God has always simply saved by faith, you know, by grace through faith. Um, but I want you to understand some of the real the real radical positions that, that began dispensationalism, and that would be one of them, that there were literally different plans of salvation. Um, however, that makes the distinction between dispensations important. Um, if God is operating on the basis of salvation by grace through faith, um, sorry, if God is operating on the basis of salvation by grace through faith in every age, why do we have distinctives? Right? What, what makes it a distinctive if God is still saving people in the same way? Um, that's primarily why, well, I don't know if that, we see a covenant, a single covenant that, that is portrayed or displayed in different eras through covenantal, you know, God, God renewing that covenant. But it's all the covenant of grace. And so you have the covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 all the way till through the end of the, of the uh, book of, you know, of, of Scripture. So you have this covenant of grace that's established, and, and God is renewing that throughout with the covenant to Abraham, covenant, you know, covenant to Noah, covenant to Abraham, covenant to Moses, but it's all one covenant. I don't think so, no. 
I think it, right, it was actually a means of condemnation. It was a means to show people their sinfulness. And that, I think, was the intent of the law. Um, and, and to point them to one who would be perfect, who would uphold the law. Right? So that is how we interpret that dispensation or that era, that covenant with Moses. Definitely old school dispensationalists would, would agree that, that that was a distinct method of, like they were saved through obedience, which ultimately meant 100% of them would have been condemned. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. None of them were perfect. So that's a real problem. I mean, either you believe, so where it leads is either a rejection of, uh, I mean, it leads to a perfectionistic idea, right? Like that we can become perfect, which is ultimately a minimizing of the standard of the law, because for anyone to say they've become perfect is to either mini- they're either minimizing the law down to it's achievable, or they're completely irrational, delusional, right? I mean, they're like crazy, or they're or they've reduced the law to something achievable by man. Right, right, Jesus Christ. saved them. Yeah, they're corrected all throughout the Gospels, and Paul is constantly correcting Israel, Israelites who demand circumcision or demand even obedience to one, one aspect of the law, right? He, he says, no, that doesn't save you, never has. So the wall of partition has been torn down Uh, We read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, during the church age. But dispensationalists seem to reestablish that wall under the kingdom age. In fact, they establish it throughout, right? So they have this distinction, but they would argue that you can, like a Jew can be saved today under dispensationalist theology by, by faith in Christ. But if they don't, then there's a potential for them to still be saved prior to the millennial reign, if Christ were to return today um, or, or during their lifetime. So what happens, though, they actually believe that, that when God reestablishes his commitment to Israel in the millennial reign or at, at his return, that that distinction from the church, um, that that distinction remains all through the millennial reign. Um, that kingdom age. Let me let me flip it over so I can show you. So I realized not only did I need to add another return of Christ, you know, as two different events, but there are multiple resurrections that take place under the dispensational 
premillennialism. Um, so you've got the, the initial return of Christ where believers, uh, this is the rapture. Believers are caught up with those, with Christians who are currently living, raptured into the air, and they are now with Christ for this entire period, which is, number three is the tribulation. So you have seven years of tribulation where the church is now in, in heaven with Christ. They come with Christ down. They have a judgment. So they also have, you have two different judgments. They have judgment between the sheep and the goats at this point. Um, the sheep will enter into the millennial reign, and these are just of believing, believing people currently. You have the sheep and the goats being judged because the saints who are in their glorified bodies are going to remain in heaven, in this heavenly Jerusalem during the millennial reign. And there's a, there's a weird um, mixture here because they do see some verses talking about the church in, involved in the judgment. So there's kind of this, um, this going back and forth between heavenly Jerusalem and the millennial reign. But because they're in their glorified bodies, it's not, they're not technically sitting on earthly thrones with, with everyone who's entering in, all the sheep that were alive at that time entering into the millennial reign with Christ. They remain in heaven, which I find problematic <laughs> because you got Christ in his heavenly body reigning on earth. I guess you have his presence in heaven with the heavenly tr- Jerusalem, but it does create some, some complications. Um, and during this final or the second return of Christ, I hate to put it like that, but it, I mean, ultimately, you've got, if you call the rapture his first return, then you'd have to say his second return. You have believers who were saved during the tribulation. So remember here, all believers have been raptured up. So there isn't a believer on the planet. But at the very beginning of the tribulation, they would say a lot of Jews will make a radical commitment to Christ at that point. In fact, 144,000 of them. That's how they interpret that language. 144,000 is a literal number of Jews who have converted, who become Christians at that point, or, or they're Messianic Jews, essentially, and they will proclaim the gospel during this seven years. They'll be witnesses to un- the unbelieving world. And because so much radical judgment is taking place, there's going to be a, va- a large number of conversions taking place. And there's also going to be a lot of death, as you find in Revelation, right? So there's a lot of people being converted and then dying. So at this second, or at this second, second coming, you have another resurrection that needs to take place of all believers. And at this point, they would also argue that the Old Testament saints are resurrected. So some would say the Old Testament saints were resurrected at this first believer's resurrection. Others would say no, because because technically this is still just for the church age. And when Christ reestablishes his commitment to, is, to the nation of Israel, that's when he's going to resurrect the Old Testament saints. Um, so it fits their theology. It doesn't fit any passage of scripture, in my opinion. None of this um, can, can be articulated from, from the text. Um, they enter, they have that judgment, and now only the sheep. So the goats will go into basically 
a holding place. They're not quite cast into the lake of fire, but they're cast into the pit or the abyss or somewhere like, um, like Satan and demons. But, they're, but they'll be finally judged at the great white throne judgment. So the, the goats go, uh, go down and the sheep basically go, or sorry, sheep go into the millennial reign. I'm going to really confuse you if I throw arrows everywhere. The sheep enter into the millennial reign with Christ. Now, at the very beginning of the millennial reign, it's this near-perfect experience because you have no one but believers who are all united entering in. However, a thousand years is a long time, so you're going to find death. You're going to have marriage still. You're going to have birth happening during this time. And the children of believers are not forced to believe. So many of them will rebel. And then at the very end of that millennial reign, Satan is released to gather together an army, and they're finally defeated. And at that point, they enter into the great white throne judgment. So at the end of the millennial reign, once again, you have believers that have been dying, and they're resurrected. And then you have the great white throne judgment, which now finally all unbelievers are resurrected, judged, and then enter either the lake of fire or the new heavens and new earth. Okay? So clear. Let me just finish this, and then I'll open it up for questions. Okay? Uh, the wall, so the wall of petition has been torn down during the church age, but dispensationalists seem to reestablish that under the kingdom age. A real clear, They maintain that distinction here between heavenly Jerusalem and the millennial uh, reign. And in fact, even in, during that millennial reign, if, the, if some of the sheep are Gentile sheep entering in, um, their judgment is different. Like they're not necessarily on the thrones with Christ, but they're also reigning. It, it's, it's, an, it's a hard concept to understand, but, but they really want to maintain a distinction. So the Reformed view sees the covenant of grace spanning the entire Bible and maintains its unity. Any questions about this? I know it's confusing, and I'm going to keep bringing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep defining this the rest of this morning, five minutes, and then next week. But let's get into eschatology specifically. Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. No. So an unbeliever doesn't... There's no technical judgment at that point. Although, clearly, if they have faith, they go to, they go to heaven. If they don't, they, they go to the grave. They go to hell. But it's, a, it's not the final lake of fire. Because they need to have a separation between the sheep and the goats so that as they enter into the millennial reign, it's got a perfected or, clo- or near-perfect component to it because that's how most of the prophecies about the millennial reign are interpreted, right? They're, they're near-perfect. There's still death, there's still sin, but it's almost eradicated. No, no, because they're all, in the beginning of the millennial reign, they're still, they're still limited by age. 
because they're all going to die before a tenth of the, or around a hundred years in. No go initially. Go, but they... Yeah, they, they view Matthew, I think the sheep and the goats judgment is Matthew 25 or 24, and they view that as, um, as a distinct judgment from the great white throne judgment, where everyone will stand before Christ and be judged. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, I probably should have mentioned that. That I mean, there, there are very few, if any, dispensationalists who deny the inerrancy of Scripture. Right? You have a ton of the other position that would deny. So they kind of view that as a very, that's the beginning. Of why they want to uphold Scripture and its authority and its impact. Um, I mean, it's... it's um, revelation of, of God. So they want to maintain a very high view of Scripture. And I think that's, that's the fault, is they, they've swung the pendulum all the way to the other end to take everything very literally. So they are there, like they come with him, but somehow when, when they enter into the millennial reign, they go back up to heaven. This is part of the problem is because they do have to see Christ coming with his saints. I think the problem is because they're already in their glorified bodies. So they can't have glor- people in glorified bodies entering into the millennial reign um, because then they wouldn't die. Right, I mean, how, and yet the millennial reign speaks of death. So either they make a distinction between glor- people in glorified bodies reigning throughout the entire millennial reign, which I don't know too many. I don't know of anyone that says that, uh, or they say, well, they're still they're kind of separate. They're in fact they they would argue that this heavenly Jerusalem is is a literal place that's above the earth because there's um there's language of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. So they would say that's literally going to happen. Like the heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down after the great white throne judgment, and then we are in our final state at that point. But they remain up top there. And there's some interaction, like I said, because they're involved. These glorified believers are involved in the judgment that's taking place. But it must be some very periodic periods of time throughout the millennial reign that that happens. So I, I also, this is a good place to stop, but I, 
all I've done so far, I tried to just establish the main distinctions of dispensationalism and, and give you an understanding of their view of Scripture as a whole, the seven different dispensations. What we're going to talk about next week is their view of eschatology, which we've given you the timeline here, but we want to, I want to define their view of the millennial reign and look at the various uh, interpretations of Old Testament prophecy, talk about the rapture and their view of that, talk about the seven-year tribulation, and then close with a critique of all of that, which I, I'm critiquing it as we go, too, if you can tell. I'm, I'm not, not quite giving you a, an unbiased view of dispensationalism. Um, but hopefully you at least understand um, what, their, what their primary position is. Um, our plan is to talk about or close this out next week as best we can or club, come close to it. If I, if I need the, the, the following week, I'll use the very little bit of it and then go back and revisit Revelation 20 and say, this is how I believe it should be read, and give you the best argument I can for an amillennial view of Revelation 20. And then we'll be done. So at that point, you can continue to ask questions. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And I do ask that you would help us to continue to to take this discussion um, uh, to heart and to study these passages with, I guess, with the, the seriousness that it calls for, um, but also to, to keep in mind that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who, who may have radical, radically different views of, us, of, of how we see the end playing out, who are still trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, who, who still have um, repented and believed. And, and who are brothers, legitimately brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I pray that this would not bring division, um, as unfortunately so much of our theology does. Uh, but I pray that in, in this case, as we deal with understanding the end times, it would, it would simply broaden our appreciation for your word and give us a greater confidence in the victory that Christ will bring at his return. In his name we ask it. Amen. All right, thank you guys.